0: I'm going to talk with you today about the subject of persecution. I have a, a lot of things I want to say about this subject. I hope I don't get too far afield and maybe make a couple of, uh, of points from Scripture that can benefit us. There's a lot to say about the subject of persecution, and perhaps some misunderstanding about that. But I want to look at two or three cases of New Testament persecution. And see what we can learn from that, some of the similarities, some things about those passages that we can learn. So I don't have any way to put those up here for you, but hopefully you can follow along in your Bible here at home or so forth. Or I'll jot them down and take a look a little bit later on. I have to tell you, I'm not one of these people that I seem to catch on the Internet among brethren who... Just blithely say, well, we need persecution and persecution is a good thing and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't believe that. I'm sorry. It may be. It's God's way of winnowing things down. It's God's way of separating those who truly will f- be faithful to Him from those who won't. But the effects of persecution are very bad, very destructive. And if we were to be persecuted here in this church, I have to say just from knowledge of what happens in history, that there would be far fewer of us us here next year and those people would be lost. Would that be you? I don't know. But it's not a pleasant thing. And we can talk easily about it as if it's something that uh, we hope would happen. I'll say this, and from what I can gather, maybe we'll come back to this in the sermon. I think persecution is, people want God to, Travis, even prayed that God would help us become a more God-fearing nation. Of course, that needs to be defined carefully, so what we might mean by that, and I I agree with that sentiment, but I have to think about how that might be applied. What I see in history is God judging nations and empires after they persecuted the church. He doesn't always judge. He didn't judge the Roman Empire because they, they, were, had, they were filled with adulterers and homosexuals. That, that's not why. And that most of the emperors were, were uh, people that we'd convict of child molestation, paterasty, and all kind of other terrible things that the emperors did, and all the Roman elite did. He didn't judge the Roman Empire just because of that. I think he judged them because they persecuted the church. And so sometimes we, we get the cart before the horse. We want the church to avoid persecution. and We want God to judge the governments and empires we live in so the church won't be persecuted. It's strange. Oftentimes it's the other way around. That's why he will bring them to their knees is because they go after God's people. The other case, the other truth of the matter is that most of the churches that we see around us today of various kinds, I'm using the word churches in the generic sense, not that these are New Testament churches, but the denominational churches and others, they will never be persecuted by this government that we have or any government around because they, they, they don't teach the things that make governments upset and they change their doctrines so as not to upset those in power in the long run. And so they will never be persecuted, but persecution will fall upon oftentimes God's true saints and others like that. And, and, uh, that's how it works, and then God brings his judgment upon those who do such things. But let's take a look at a couple of scriptures. We'll come back to some of this stuff. Uh, let's take let's just go to one of the first cases of persecution uh, in a direct way of the church in the book of Acts. This is in Acts chapter seven. Here we have Stephen, an evangelist, preaching to the Jewish leaders here in the city of Jerusalem. And he recounts the history of Israel, Israel, how God had brought about all of these things through the history of Israel to bring about Jesus Christ as the Savior. What had prophets had been talking about was this one that we now know of as Jesus was going to come and going to save them. But they had rejected him, he said. They They had been guilty of crucifying and rejecting God's anointed one. And the scriptures say in Acts chapter 7, verse 54, now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. They were so angry that they literally were snarling at him and baring their teeth. And being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, pause for a second. Normally, the, pictures, the scriptures picture Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. And so commentators have noted that perhaps Jesus was standing up to welcome him, I, I'm not sure about that, but he wasn't sitting, he was standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Meaning Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. This is the reaction that speaking the truth in our secular culture will get you from the people who oppose you. They, they don't they no longer listen. They gnash their teeth and stop up their ears and try to figure out some way to get you to shut up. Is that too impolite to say? And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, and they went on stoning Stephen as he called out on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. So a couple of points we made. It's obvious, first of all, that the death of Stephen came as a direct result of him preaching the truth to these Jews. These were not necessarily the common people of the Jews. These were Jewish leaders and so forth, as the, oftentimes the book of Luke and Acts, and John also, when it uses the word Jews, it doesn't mean just a Jewish person. It means a leader of the Jews, of the elite group of of their religious and political leaders. That's who was stoning Stephen. And it came as a direct result of him trying to teach them about Jesus Christ in truth. Not some secular, babble lesson about truth in that general sense but the truth about who Jesus was and why these people should submit to him and that's why they killed him and he condemned them for example of he said you men who are stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears you're always resisting the Holy Spirit you're doing just as your fathers did which one of the the prophets that your fathers not persecute and so forth and so they reacted in great anger to this. Now Peter says, sobering words to us, not just about this particular case, but, but, but Peter says in First Peter chapter four, "Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or an e- a thief or an evildoer or as a troublesome meddler. but if anyone suffers as a Christian, He is not to be ashamed. Let him glorify God in this name or on this behalf. So we can suffer for a lot of reasons. Sometimes religious leaders who call themselves Christians suffer because they are embezzlers or child molesters or other forms of criminals. And they suffer at the hands of government. They would like to lay this to their preaching. Perhaps it is so in that oftentimes these kinds of leaders trump up charges against a person, and the only reason they're looking in the direction of that preacher is because he's a preacher. That can happen. They only they look in the direction of certain churches because those churches have openly opposed their dictates. They look in that direction. And then sometimes it's easy to find reasons to indict them on some charge. And it will but in the end, the, the true persecution of the Lord's people comes as a result of preaching the truth. That truth can be about something about the personhood of Jesus. It can be about morality or society or other matters. It can be a lot of things that we preach that are true. For example, in, in the, there's a trial that's been going on. I have, if the outcome has been made, I haven't read about it yet, in Sweden, These two uh, supposed Christians, I'll use that in, I don't think they're New Testament Christians, but they are Christian uh, teachers, pastors, and so forth, are on trial because they wrote a pamphlet in Sweden that says that marriage is between a man and a woman. and And they quoted many Bible references to this fact. That pamphlet is deemed to be hate speech in Sweden, and they are on trial facing imprisonment, because of hate speech that they put out against homosexuals because they said that marriage in the Bible is between one man and one woman. How far are we from that in the United States with our hate speech laws? We're we're right there. I mean, I think it's possible in the next few years that there will begin to be arrests being made and prosecutions being made on that basis of hate speech. So all you Christians who say, Oh, we should have laws against hate speech and a bad thing to talk, bad, uh, yes. Hateful speech is bad. Wicked speech, blasphemous speech is bad. But to make that a criminal offense, I, I think the ignorance shown there by many Christians is astounding as to who they think that's going to be used against. Who do you think that's going to be used against? The people that hate you? The people that hate God? The people that hate the Bible? No, of course not. It's going to be used against God's people. And this is this is where the rubber meets the road as far as where we are, that it won't be long until the things that we say from this pulpit are going to be challenged. Well, I think one of the the district attorney in Houston, not too long ago, demanded that all the preachers submit her, their sermon outlines to her ahead of time so she could say that they were going to be able to be preached because of these things, because of the gay and lesbian stuff and homosexual stuff. Now, that got some pushback, thankfully, We still live in a country where we can push back a little, but that right is being more and more restricted of being able to push back. And a lot of preachers and Christians, well-meaning people perhaps, but ignorant, I believe, about the true nature of things, will object if there's any pushback made to any of these kinds of laws, but they don't realize what they're doing is bringing about persecution. If that's the case, if it has to be that way, so be it. Bring on the handcuffs. But I think today we ought to be—we uh, ought not to go down that path willingly. We ought to be—we ought to do whatever we can to prevent that situation from happening in the United States, because once that takes place, the message will be killed. Now, I, I'm not God. I don't know how all these things work out. But let's just say that there were people listening to the, our radio show or these lessons on in the community here. There are people that were listening people that were perhaps learning people that were were uh, hearing things preached that benefited them spiritually leading them toward Christ and then they read in the paper that I've been arrested for hate speech and they see a picture of me in handcuffs uh, being taken away for hate speech because I dare say that marriage is indeed between a man and a woman according to God. What happens in that case? do you think you think hordes of people are going to come forward and say, Oh, that's a good man there. He he's being persecuted. I don't think so. I think going to say. I think they're going to say. Why do I want to listen to a jailbird? This man's a criminal. Why do we want? We're going to turn away. And that 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 is at least as likely to happen as to attract anyone to a group that the government is calling a hate speech group, or or uh, lumping together with all all the other radicals in our society, being called Nazis and whatnot and so forth. You see. Uh, that that's at least as likely so I think we should avoid that problem by making sure that the, while we still have a voice among our elected officials to make sure that that kind of thing doesn't happen but the truth is um, God can use persecution to bring about some good things in fact standing there in that audience while they were stoning Stephen it says they laid their garments at his feet Was a young man named Saul this man was leading the charge against these Christians. He was doing so out of a good heart, in some ways, of one wanting to protect what he thought was the truth about the law of Moses, about who Christ, who who the Christ was going to be. But in the end, Paul said he was a persecutor and an insolent man and the chief of sinners. That was Paul's own description of his actions a little bit later on in this case, so I don't want to make him out to be something he's not. And yet he did say, in Acts 23, 1, that he had lived in all good conscience until that day. He did what he thought was right, but he was wrong completely in what he thought was right on that day. And Saul was eventually converted. He said, Oh, well, there you go, you see? Persecution can lead to conversions. I want you to rethink that. I'm going to give you another one of these Mike Schmidt interpretations that probably could be wrong, so you. I'm giving you a I need, a, I need some lights installed right here that'll kind of flash a warning light that says you're about to hear something that you, know, you, you need to double check and that's fine that won't bother me but I, flashing lights will never convince me I'm wrong you better have a better reason than that but anyway I don't know who we should give the button to though that's the question to push the button I'll push it <clears throat> I don't think the apostle Paul or Saul is an evidence of how you convert people what did it take to convert Paul? You know what Jesus said to him when he struck him blind on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? There's our word. And by the way, remind me where I'm at. I'm on Saul on the road, but I'm a, I meant to say this earlier. The, to persecute means to chase. It means to run after. It means to cause to run, to chase some, someone so that they flee. It means to doggedly pursue them down to the death. And that's what persecution is. It's not a one-time thing. It's a dogged pursuit of something or some group of people. And that's that's what he's saying is going on. Why do you persecute me, Saul? It is hard for you to kick against the pricks or the goats. That's an interesting statement. What he's saying is, Saul, you've been going through this process of persecuting me. And all along the way, I'm trying to goad you. I'm trying to push you to be my disciple. And you will not respond. You keep kicking against it. And so finally, I had to strike you blind and put you on your knees before you would listen to me. I don't think we can count on people being struck blind on the road somewhere before as an example of conversion. That's not how you and I are going to convert people. And if you think you can use him as an example of how you should convert people, even the most hard-headed people, even the ones that hate Christ the most, why they're really good candidates for the gospel. No, that's not what I see in the Bible. I see this case where God performed a miracle to convert Paul. That's why Paul was so thankful for this. It wasn't like somebody sat him down over a period of time. They had Bible studies with Paul. and They finally changed his mind on this. They showed the Jewel Miller film strip, you know, and he became a Christian. Some of you remember those, huh? That's not how he became. This is a case where Christ just had to finally intervene with a miracle and hurt him before he would pay attention. But God was still trying to goad him in that direction. And so persecution, some people will be influenced by seeing persecution, even by participating in it. When they see the reaction of Christians, they can be goaded to become believers. This is where you get the these statements made by Romans and pagans that we have recorded in early church history of them seeing these Christians being put to death in the circus. Christians were not killed in the Colosseum. From what we know, they were killed in the Circus Maximus, another big venue in Rome. And they the people saw them torn apart by lions and they were praying and singing while they were being torn apart by lions. And they faced their death, not as the pagans when they set, set the lions on them and they ran and screamed. And just a great crowd, just entertainment galore, you know, make some good YouTube. Vid- the kind of things that young people like today, those kind of violent YouTube videos, People are screaming and are embarrassed. You know, that's what they could have filmed. No, the Christians huddled together and prayed and faced their death nobly. And it influenced some of these pagans to say, what kind of people are these? They'd never seen anything like it. They could face death with courage. Why would they do that? Well, there was nothing in serving the Roman gods that would lead you to face death with dignity and courage, particularly. But in Christ, there was. So some of them were converted. In fact, it came to be said by one of the early church fathers that our blood on the ground becomes the seeds of more followers of Christ, more disciples. So as our blood falls on the ground, it sprouts forth new disciples of Christ. So that can happen. Persecution can influence those around you. The numbers are very small. Persecution usually influences the common culture to disregard and dismiss those who are being persecuted. And that's what's happening today. When people are persecuted, charged with these kind of things like hate speech and being a racist or vile or this, the common people dismiss those people. They want nothing to do with them. They're a bunch of jailbirds and people that are lawbreakers. All kind of charges are leveled. They're law bank breakers. They're rebels and all these charges are laid. And, and common people tend to believe that. So there's nothing there. Now, Stephen had an attitude of forgiveness. It's not clear that God forgave them because Stephen asked them to. I take another odd position. Just because Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, doesn't mean that God did forgive them. In fact, I think the evidence is God did not forgive them because Jesus asked that. That showed Jesus' attitude. But not long after that, God sent Peter to preach to those very same people and he told them they were guilty of killing Christ for the very thing that he was saying forgive them for. And they had to repent to be baptized to be saved. So it's obvious God hadn't forgiven them for the remission of their sins. Their sins had not been remitted by Jesus' prayer. To illustrate. And I don't think the sin of killing Stephen here was remitted. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. Well, what event do you might think he might mostly be thinking of when he called himself the chief of sinners? Putting to death this righteous man. Paul knew he wasn't forgiven then. Even though Stephen asked him to be forgiven, so we should have an attitude of forgiving those around us. We should always be willing to forgive, but that doesn't mean the fact that they will be forgiven until they repent. But anyway, that's another story. Then we have James. Another example of this is the is James the apostle. So not long after this, in Acts twelve, or sometime a little bit later, Acts twelve, it says, "Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church." in order to mistreat them, Acts 12, verse 1. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now this shows very clearly that there are going to be times when the civil authorities will target Christians for persecution. If we think this can't or won't happen, we're simply living in, a, in with a delusion And if you think that our laws, the United States, protect us from that, you're living in a delusion. It's very clear that the people who have this kind of power do not respect the laws of the United States. And therefore, they will find a way, make it legal, to persecute those who they are willing to persecute. Now, I don't know if they're going to come in here and drag us out and execute us right away. This man, Herod, who was not only a religious leader, but also a civil leader, he, he had that power. And apparently, from the context, it seems... That as soon as he went in and arrested James and maybe some others, he put James to death right away. There was no trial. There was no lengthy imprisonment like John the Baptist. There was no, nothing like Peter where he waited a few days. He put him to death immediately with the sword. Had him had his head cut off, most likely immediately. As an example, don't mess with us. We also have to remember that in this time, and this place, the civil authorities and the religious authorities are very much blended together. When it talks about the Jews here, it's probably talking about mostly the religious leaders of the day. Although those religious leaders on the Sanhedrin had civil authority, that not only this is the problem of understanding some of the uh, law of Moses as applied, like in the book of Acts about the sacrifices, is they were legal. They were not only religious laws; they were legal things that had to. Be. When when you go to some Israel today, um, was that in Caesarea, Judy, where we? Spent the Sabbath night, uh, Tiberias. over on the lake. We were, we stayed at a hotel down by, uh, down by the lake there, and my brothers and I went out walking around after supper, down there. And and next thing you know, here come all the cops. Israeli cops making sure making sure that every business was closed since the sun began going down, making sure people were on the street properly. Now they could see. We were a bunch of ignorant Gentiles, and they didn't say anything to us. You know? But they were they were trying to make sure the businesses were closed. Because not only is the Sabbath, and in in, in, in in parts of Israel, it is still viewed as a civil law. When I was a boy, you know, we grew up with blue laws. Everything was closed on Sunday. And you couldn't buy beer, and you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that on Sunday. Any of you grew up in this kind of community? The blue They call them blue laws. Well, well, that was not just a religious law. It may have had a religious background. That was a civil law. You could be fined for those kind of things. And, and so that's what was going on here. Now, they came and got James. Immediately killed him. Now, I've thought about this before. You probably have too. This had to have a tremendous effect upon the early Christians. It's one thing to be unpopular It's one thing to follow Jesus and he's interesting and become and be baptized. And you're a little bit different than your neighbors who are still in Orthodox Jews and, and all that. Now they've drug one of you out, one of the main ones, an apostle. And they've actually killed him without a trial. If they drug me out of here next Sunday and killed me. You'd probably have shorter sermons after that, but, but that would put a, whether, whether you like me or not, that would be a very, very chilling event to everyone Amen. here, and probably a lot of other people, and that's what happened here. This was a, a, tremend, a tremendous impact to these people, but there are times when we know from the Bible that the civil authorities will target the church. How do I know that? Because they've already done it. That's what this story is telling you. This certainly can happen here. We don't have to do anything to bring that about, but that certainly happened. And then it says that on that day, in chapter 8 of verse of, about Stephen, a great persecution began against the church, and Saul began ravaging the church, entering in house after house, and dragging off men and women he, and put them in prison. So this is the kind of thing that follows. It kind of feeds on itself. There became a feeding frenzy. Now, what would happen if that took place? Well, hopefully what would happen is that there would not be a big change that people would still go about being continually devoted to the Lord. But I guarantee you there would be a change in what people thought about that. It wouldn't just be a matter of coming together for convenience to do things. It would be something very different. In communist China, having known people that have preached and worked there for 20 some years, these people, and it got better for a little while, but now it's not, it's worse. They sing, if they sing at all, out in open fields where no one can hear them, or they whisper in their assemblies if they're in any kind of a building. They're very cautious because ones that they've come to trust will turn them in. In China, they get rewarded for turning them in. That kind of social credit system is coming quickly to the United States, where people get certain social credits for what they post or don't post, and for turning people in for hate speech and other kind of crimes. It's coming quickly to the United States, the social credit system that happens in China, where you can be rewarded for turning in your neighbors who are Christians. And so they teach quietly. They speak quite, they're very cautious about everything because they will end up, and it isn't just that they drag the person themselves out. The, the, real, the real persecutors and the Chinese are very good at this. Hitler was very good at this. If they wanted to come after me, they wouldn't come after me. They would come after Judy or my grandchildren. No, I, I would take whatever they wanted to give me, I think. I, I hope I would. I like to think I would. I don't know. I think I would. But now what do I do when they're going to take these children or my son-in-law or my daughter or somebody like that? They're going to punish them unless I change my mind or say certain things. That's how you see these people standing in front of a camera with a wooden look on their face making statements because what's happening behind the scenes by these diabolical, wicked, worldly leaders is what's going to happen. So, so this, is, this is not that far from cancel culture. Cancel culture tries to punish you by isolating you from all your friends and relatives and means of work so that you will change your view and say the right things in public. <clears throat> this is how it's done. They don't go after you per se. They try to prevent you from being able to take care of your family or even have your, they take away all your friends, everybody else. This kind of diabolical thinking has always been present. And then when you notice with James, what you see here is that this persecution actually became very positive for Herod. It says there that Herod saw that the killing of James pleased the Jews, and so he proceeded to arrest Peter also. He saw that there were lots of powerful people that were pleased by what he had done, and so he proceeded to arrest other people. If you think that there'll be some kind of outrage that goes on if they persecute Christians, you you might be mistaken about that. Because a lot of people will be very pleased by, in fact, people far more important than people that you know will be pleased by this persecution. And they'll be all in favor of it. And, and so you have this problem. Now, he said, the Bible says as Christians, Romans 12, as far as possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Of course, that very statement itself tells you that sometimes it's just not possible to be at peace with all men. We have to stand up and say what's going to be said. Now, I want to quickly go to one other, maybe not as well known. That's that's the persecution of Antipas in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Read with me in chapter 2 of the book of Revelation. We haven't got time to consider this. i ramble off on sidetracks too much. But to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, And you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, literally in Greek, my martyr. The word martyr and witness are the same word in Greek. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So here are people in Pergamum, which is now Turkey, who are living in a place, he says, where Satan dwells. And they have a church there. Among the faithful of that church was a man named Antipas who was put to death among them. And yet, they still continue to hold fast to the name of Jesus Christ. And that's got to be our responsibility to do that. The temptation to become wicked and deceitful, respond in kind, can't be given into. But Jesus says in his own in his own words in Matthew ten, whoever. Anyone who can Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Now, now this church dwelt where Satan was, but he said, you have to be faithful and can't deny my name. And, and so you see, and there's a bunch of other scriptures I have written down here that I want to talk about, but the truth is we have to be willing, even if we're the only one, to stand up and tell the truth. This is where we hear in Smyrna, the same general passage in Revelation 10 of these letters to these churches. This is where we're reminding you we to be faithful unto death. Do not fear, he says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, of what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. But be faithful to death and I will give you the crown of life. You'll be tested. You'll have tribulation. The word tribulation, interesting word. It's it's a, a grape word. It's about making wine or grape juice. And it's with a pressing down on the grape. You see it, this press come down on the grape and the skin gets tighter and tighter and tighter and finally begins to burst open. That's the word for tribulation. The pressing down on grapes. The pressure that causes eventually causes this spurting forth of blood, as it were. And he says, you're going to have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death. I guess I used to think that meant they're going to throw you in jail for a 10-day sentence and you get out. I think it means after 10 days, you're going to kill you. Okay, That's why you've got to be faithful unto death because you're about to face death. And this doesn't mean, uh, we use it like this. And it can mean this. But the immediate context doesn't mean be faithful to death. And so if you live to be 99 years old, just be faithful until the day that you die. I hope to do that. I hope that's the case with me. One day you can say, well, he was faithful till death. He lived to be 99 years old. Judy finally got really mad at him and bumped him off. But anyway, he was faithful till death. Well, you got to look up that video, survived by his wife. Okay. It's a famous video out there, survived by his wife. I forgot the man's name now. Alan King. Look it up. Are you on a good laugh this afternoon? Survived by his wife. Anyway. I don't think that's what this means. Be faithful unto death means up to the point of even death. That's what it means. Up to and including death, I want you to be faithful to me and not deny me and not go back on what you confessed that you believe I'm the Son of God. And that you're mine and belong to me, I want you to be faithful even and up to the point of death. So that's what we're need to do. Now, the, the other thing we can learn about this is that, you know, if a church is being persecuted, it doesn't mean that just because a church is being persecuted that they're correct about everything or that they aren't in danger, they're still in danger of being lost. The reason God allows pressure against us is to test us. Or prove us. That's why he allows sickness. And weakness. And illness. And financial trouble. And marital trouble. He allows these things to happen to us. To test us. To put pressure on us. And we often fail. Under the pressure. We give in. And we do wrong things. And even when you're persecuted. You can be persecuted. And you can still fail. Because you give in to the pressure against you and you sin. You sin by compromising. You sin by weakness. You sin by giving enemies of Christ comfort in what you say. You deny him before men at the worst. Or you yourself commit sins of evil speaking and of hatred and jealousy and pride and all those other sins that will condemn you. This is where the pressure lies. And we've seen people even in the last couple years dealing with their resistance to government dictates about COVID and other things. We've seen people in trying to resist these things fail to live up to the example of Christ. I give them credit where credit is due. And I give them honor for resisting the persecution against Christians because of these dictates. But on the other hand, I cannot approve of the wicked things that are often said and done in those events. I think sometimes there's a failure there. I don't know what, and that's not coming from some place of strength. I don't know what I'm going to do or would do in that situation, but we certainly cannot do this. We have to maintain our integrity all the way to the end in this matter. Well, we got some other people in the book of Revelation. In chapter 6, he has all these martyrs, all these people that have been killed by by Caesar under the altar in chapter 6, and he, he doesn't even name any of them. Tells them, wait, wait. How long, O oh Lord, they say, will you not avenge us? See, they know something. They know the Lord will bring justice to those who persecute the church. He'll bring justice to those who suffer for righteousness. When you suffer for righteousness, you can be assured God will bring justice to you. It may not be in this life, but you will be avenged. His cause will be, and He will. that's where I get the idea that he will eventually judge these governments and other people, other, other officials who persecute the church. He will bring justice because that's what he does in the book of Revelation. Very, that's what the whole book of Revelation is about. God bring about justice to those who would persecute his church. And he does so. It just doesn't happen in the time frame that we want it to happen or think it should happen sometimes. Well, our time is gone today. I I, I can't keep talking here. I said I had more to say about it. We'll do that some other time. But I do want you to think about persecution. And you need to prepare yourself that perhaps you'll be persecuted. You need to pray that we won't be and we can have a change of of direction in our country that will not, even though people disagree, we we will never turn our country back from the uh, homosexual agenda and the transgender agenda. We'll never turn our country back in our lifetime. And you know why that's going to happen? I'll tell you why that'll happen. Because we'll never turn our country back from being a bunch of fornicators and adulterers among the heterosexuals. Can't Can't turn that around. We can't turn around the other sexual sins of our society in our lifetime, but we can live righteously ourselves as best we can. We can show love and generosity to people around us, not hate them for their sin. And we can also expect to face persecution. I hope you'll have courage in that. Not be afraid to tell people what is true in the right way and have courage. So this morning as we sing this song, what was the song number, Gary? 380, 380, we're going to sing as we close our service. And we hope that you'll consider your relationship to Christ. If you, if you need prayers for strength and courage, let us pray with you today. If you need help facing some difficulty where you think you're being persecuted, perhaps we can help you. Let us start with prayer today. Come to the front, we'll pray with you. This morning, if you need to name the name of Christ, stop giving into our own culture, name his name. And be saved. We can baptize you into Christ this very hour, and you can become a Christian. Are you ready? Are you willing? Come to the front right now. Let's stand and sing.